0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today's guest is Terry Haggerty, who co leads our building products and home building practice in the investment banking division. The question for him today is How has COVID 19 had an impact on the outlook for housing and the broader building product sector? Terry, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Drake. It's great to speak. So, Terry, before we address the current crisis and COVID 19, you talk to a lot of CEOs. What were they thinking coming into this year and what were they expecting in 2020?
1: It's a good question. When I talked to my CEO clients in late 2019, they were very optimistic about 2020. And there's a number of reasons for that. The first is the supply and demand dynamic in the sector. So on the demand side, there's been a lot of conversations about the millennial generation and their extended adolescence, the fact that they've been delaying family formation and delaying buying homes. One of my favorite statistics is that the median age of a home buyer in 1985 was 32, and today that's 47. That said, we were really starting to see that trend change, and the millennial homebuyer was emerging. Now, this generation, which is 70 million Americans aged 20 to 40, is entering an age band where you typically see homeownership move from around 30% to more like 65%. And that was expected to be a very significant and long term tailwind going into 2020. Augmenting that demand was a real limit in the supply. Builders have really been underbuilding homes since the financial crisis. And we expected that to drive the construction of a number of new homes. A secondary dynamic there is that the age of homes has increased to about 40 years. And in that environment, you typically see repair and remodel spending, folks redoing their kitchens, their decks, their bathrooms, really spike. And that can be very beneficial to the building products manufacturers who sell into those end markets.
0: Obviously, nothing is the same since the impact of COVID-19. But what's happened in this sector, particularly, and how has that outlook that you described, that optimistic outlook, changed?
1: Sure. So... You know, COVID-19 has dramatically impacted really every end market, and construction is no different. Now, on the positive side, construction has been deemed essential in many states. That said, new homes and expensive repair and remodel expenditure are discretionary consumer products. And In an environment where the economic outlook is very uncertain, that is going to slow. We really saw the first data point illustrating this with the March new home starts, which were down 20%. And what makes that particularly jarring is the fact that the first two weeks of March were actually quite positive. So we expect the April data to be worse. That said, our outlook for the sector overall, many of the demographic tailwinds I talked about at the beginning of the call are still in place. And therefore, while we expect there to be a pause in construction, COVID-19 hasn't fundamentally changed the sector. And because of that, we expect new home starts to return to 2019 levels at some point during 2021. And I would make a similar comment for the broader construction industry as well.
0: So, um, obviously, in the equity markets, this sector has been particularly challenged. Basically, home builders are down on average about 50%. The product manufacturers are down 35%. What are investors thinking about this sector right now? And, and how are they weighing the, the equity outlook?
1: It's a great question, and look, we are all human, and we're all subject to some recency bias. And I think folks are looking at two thousand eight and approximating equity market performance and financial performance of the sector to be similar to what they saw then. I will say the environment is is much different from my perspective, and it's for a couple of reasons. One is the supply and demand dynamic that I described earlier. If you remember back to two thousand eight, the two thousand eight crisis was largely caused by an asset bubble and, frankly, an oversupply of housing. That's not the case today. The housing supply is quite low. Additionally, the consumer is in a much better position today than they were going into 2008. The household debt to GDP ratio in 2008 was about 85%. Today, it's more like 65%. So we think that looks a lot better overall in terms of the consumer's ability to really lean in on both housing and repair and remodel spending going forward. I think the last point, which might be the most important point, is when I look at the balance sheets and liquidity positions of my clients, both in home building and building products. It's quite strong. Most of them still have access to the capital markets, given some of the Fed action that we've seen. And generally, they're all positioned to weather what could be a potentially a very extended downturn. So the outlook today is much different. And while folks are naturally going to look to 2008 as a comparable, I do think, at least as it relates to construction. Things are much different today.
0: So there's always in Washington talk of infrastructure bills, and they never seem to go anywhere. But the crisis seems to give a little new impetus towards bipartisan cooperation on things that might stimulate the economy. How might an infrastructure bill help this sector? So an infrastructure
1: bill would, would certainly be helpful for construction overall. And I agree with you. There is bipartisan support right now for the concept. I will say an infrastructure bill is a bit complicated in terms of how you fund it, how you structure it, and what the dynamic is between more urban states and more rural states. And in an election year, particularly a very polarized election year, we think it's unlikely we see an infrastructure bill before the 2020 election. That said, we are becoming more and more optimistic that you'll see some sort of infrastructure spending bill in 2021.
0: So the crisis has obviously put a lot of things on hold, including M&A. How are people in the sector thinking and what are they focused on given the lack of uh, deal activity?
1: You're right. M&A has really been on pause. And this has been a sector where there's been a lot of activity driven by private equity, driven by consolidation in key product categories and some of the larger, more diversified players reorienting their portfolio, whether it's via spinoffs or divestitures, and things are really on pause. And when I talk to my clients, I'd say where where they are really focused is the safety, health, and wellness of their employee base. And I actually think this has been an underreported story. I hear this in the private conversations I have with clients. And if you read through their earnings transcripts over the past months or so, it's really the focus. I mean, a good example is Lenar, which is one of the country's largest home builders. They reported earnings on March 19th, which, if you think back to then, was really peak uncertainty in terms of the outlook of this virus. I think the S&P bottomed a few days later, and that call was, was 60% focused on their employee base. So I do think CEOs are laser-focused on, one, ensuring the safety of folks that are in factories, that are on job sites, and two, making sure that their employees are, are ready to go if there is a recovery in the near term.
0: So you, you mentioned private equity's experience with the sector and their renewed interest How might that play out and change going forward?
1: So private equity returns in the building products space have been very strong over the past 10 years, and that's attracted more and more funds to focus on the sector. I will say fundamental to private equity are financing markets where they can put significant leverage on businesses. And while in the current environment, the investment grade and high yield markets are very open to to well-known corporate issuers, I think it's going to take a bit more time before private equity firms can really tap the leverage markets for what I'll call more PE style financing transactions. So that I do not expect to be near term.
0: This has been a sector that's seen a lot of activism. Given the major decline in stock prices, do you expect to see activists pick up in, the, in this space?
1: So when I talk to my clients about activism, I typically remind them that activists fundamentally, first and foremost, are deep value investors. So an environment where there's a lot of stock price dislocation there is inherently more potential for activism because there's more embedded upside in those stock prices. That said, this environment is a bit different. One, activists themselves have been a bit challenged uh, the way everyone's portfolio has been challenged in terms of performance. And two, this is a health crisis more than a, a financial crisis. And I do think there's a perception that is accurate that any sort of activist agitation against the management team in the current environment would be exceptionally tone deaf to what they're really focused on, which is liquidity and and the safety of their employees. So while activism will certainly come in the wake of this crisis, it always does. I do not think we'll see much activism in the near term until we have more visibility in terms of when this crisis will begin to slow.
0: So you mentioned early on that we were on the cusp of seeing a little bit of a change in millennial habits in terms of home buying. Do you expect to see any changes come out of this crisis, longer term difference in, in those trends? I do.
1: And, and and maybe again, I'll point back to 2008. In, in 2008, you saw a large number of Americans decide that you know maybe borrowing a bunch of money and buying a house is not the best investment. I think you may see the opposite effect this time around. And what I mean by that is, There's a view that this could be the catalyst that pushes a large number of millennials out of the city centers and into the suburbs. And I do think an additional accelerant of that trend is going to be the fact that working from home has become easier and more accepted, and therefore being in a city center is less relevant. I would say the other trend I expect to see is more on the repair and the remodel side. You've got a large number of folks who are spending more time in their homes than they ever used to. And they're looking around at what they don't like or what they may want to improve. So, I expect a real spike in remodeling spending coming out of this crisis. If I had to pick one area of the home where that would be particularly acute, I think it's going to be the outdoor living expenditure, which was a place that was already growing a bit more than overall home repair and remodel spending.
0: So, another trend, obviously, pre-crisis was that we were seeing smart homes, more technology and innovation in the building sector, in the home. Will you expect that to continue or as a result of the crisis or maybe be accelerated? I, I do think it's going to continue. And I think you're right. It could even
1: accelerate. When you look across industrial end markets, the real ubiquitous theme we've seen over the past 20 years has been increased technology. And if you look at your own car, I think that's probably the best example. How much incremental technology is in the car, more so than it was 10 years ago. One laggard has really been construction. And when I think about interesting innovation and technology around the home, it's really all sorts of different things. It's material replacement. So companies that are replacing traditional wood that you would use in deck or the trim of a home with more environmentally friendly, durable materials. It's in-home technologies. One of my favorites is electrochromic windows, which are windows that automatically change in tint, which dramatically changes the experience of the home in terms of lighting. You don't need blinds and that sort of thing. And it also changes just the energy efficiency of a home. And then lastly, you're seeing changes in the way that homes are actually built. So taking more of the construction, moving it off-site, making it more efficient, taking some of the labor out of it, I think you're going to see that trend really emerge. You, know, you, you brought up something interesting and, and more specific, which was the connected home. I think the connected home is quite interesting when I talk to my building products clients because from a consumer standpoint, it's exceptionally important. But it's really a trend that's being driven by big tech, like Amazon and Google. So while my clients know that they have to play in that ecosystem and they have to be relevant, they're reticent to really try and lead that movement, given your competition seeks to be other building products manufacturers and starts to be very large, very well-capitalized companies.
0: So obviously, how do you view your role? It's changed a little bit. There isn't as much M&A going on. What's, what's your role now as, sort of a, as an advisor to your clients today compared to normal state business?
1: When this crisis first started, the focus was really distilling all of the information that was out there about the virus and about the implications of the virus into what was most relevant and most critical to our clients. The next stage was really on a client-by-client basis doing downside scenario planning, understanding their liquidity, and making sure that they were in the position to weather what could be a very long downturn. Now that we're in a situation where I think we all have a much better understanding, at least on the range of possible outcomes of this crisis, it's returned to more strategic dialogue and, frankly, more traditional investment bank dialogue, which is the acquisition of capital and the allocation of capital. So while clients are still concerned and there's still downside scenario planning. We are starting to have bigger discussions about what should you be doing differently today than you were doing pre-crisis to make sure that you meet your strategic objectives.
0: Well, that's a somewhat hopeful note. We like to close with something a little personal. I ask all, I guess, what they've been doing a little differently these days. Anything you've been doing that's a little different than the way you were living before the crisis?
1: So it's, it's a good question. I, I've been trying to keep a lot of my typical routine. One thing I've added, which was actually the recommendation of a client, is I've been reading Warren Buffett's shareholder letters dating back to 1957 and just working through them chronologically. And I think it's been, it's been interesting for two reasons. The first is that it's just a great history lesson hearing what was going on in the US economy generally, in the market specifically, from the perspective of someone who is experiencing them at the time. And then, two, it's a good reminder that while we haven't seen this unique set of facts before, we have seen similar crises and we've weathered through them and we've come out the other end stronger. So, it's also a bit of a hopeful message that uh, we will get through this as well.
0: Yeah, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, Terry. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. That concludes this episode of Exchanges with Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in for our weekly markets update Friday morning, where leaders around the firm provide their take on markets and what's driving the new volatility. This podcast was recorded on April 20th, 2020. Thank you.